Hello and welcome back to the Garden Weekly Bible Study. We're going through the book of Hebrews. Last week we started with an introduction and look at the structure of the book. And this week we are diving right into the verse-by-verse study with chapter 1, verses 1, and part of 2. Like any good sermon, the book of Hebrews opens with a punch. It opens with something designed to capture its readers' and hearers' attention. I'm just going to read these first four verses, which are one long, beautifully constructed sentence in the original Greek. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Like I said, this is one long sentence in the Greek, um, and at its very heart is God is the subject of the Greek sentence. And the primary verb here is spoken. So the main part of the sentence, if we could boil it down, is God has spoken to us by his son, or as we'll see in the original Greek, it's has spoken to us by a son. Everything else in the Greek is a dependent clause on this heart of the sentence. And we're going to expand out, and today we're going to be looking at that heart um, and then expanding out in our next two studies as we go through this introduction in a little bit past. So we're going to cut the sentence in half, as I previewed you there, um, and take a look at only verses 1 and half of 2 today. So this is going to be Uh, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. But before we go deeper, I just want to say again, welcome to the Garden Weekly Bible Study. My name is Joel Fisher. I'm a defender of Christianity and a student of scripture, and I'm here to help you go deeper in your faith by walking through scripture with you. This is a new format for the Bible study. Um, I have done articles before, but video and podcast is new. Uh, I know some people learn better with graphics or through audio, so I wanted to try that out and help you guys who do learn better that way to uh, get as much out of the Bible study as people who learn through a lot of reading. Um, My goal is to have these at 20 minutes or less. We'll see. Uh, This is my second recording of this. The first one went a little bit over, but we'll try to keep it fairly short for you guys. But we're still going to go pretty deep into the text and try to understand what these biblical authors are trying to tell us. So, in this text today, three comparisons dominate. There are actually four, um, but one is pretty straightforward, so I'm going to skip it and we'll see those here. So, first one is long ago compared to in these last days. So, it's We are comparing how God has spoken long ago versus in the last days. Second, we are going to look at um, how God spoke or through whom God spoke. 
So we have by the prophets, long ago by the prophets, and in these last days by his son, or by a son, as we'll see. Thirdly, uh, third comparison here is long ago God spoke at many times and in many ways, compared to God spoke question mark. Interesting that there's no direct relation here to how he has spoken in these last days, and I think that that's important, and we'll get there. And then the last one, the fourth one that I mentioned is God spoke to the fathers versus God has spoken to us. Now that's interesting because as I mentioned in the introduction video, I believe that the author was probably Jewish and he was probably writing to Jews. He was probably writing to Jewish Christians. So it's interesting that he uses the word fathers and us here to seemingly um, connect these people to their ancestors who would have been the prophets um, that God has spoken through, or the Jewish believers that the prophets spoke to. Um, so I think that that is another point in the favor of the author being Jewish and the receivers probably being Jewish. It's possible that he is just connecting Greek Christians with the Jewish ancestors through Christ um, because they are now one family, but I think that the weight of evidence is probably on the receivers and the author being Jewish. So, we are going to look at first, long ago versus in the last days. When did God speak? So, this comparison is emphasizing that Christians are living in a different era than the Jewish believers of old. A new age has come upon the earth. Um, and it has come upon the earth because of a son. God is no longer speaking, or God has not spoken in the same way that he used to to their fathers. The author says we are living in the last days. This is a different era. But we also, before I explain what the last days means, we also do have to emphasize the continuity between these two eras. Not only um, has God spoken in these last days, but God has spoken long ago too. And not only has God spoken long ago, but God has spoken in these last days. God speaks no matter the era. So God has spoken, God is speaking, there is a continuity between these two. It's not a hard break in between them. So if I had a nickel for the number of times that I've heard another Christian tell me or that I've just heard a Christian say that we are living in the last days, I would probably be a pretty rich man. And I'm going to guess that if you haven't said it yourself, you've probably heard it. Um, how they, and it's definitely true, right? Obviously, it says in these last days right there. It's in the text. Um, but how they usually mean it, I think, isn't really how the author of Hebrews is using it. And we can see that because he wrote 2,000 years ago, and he wrote about being in the last days. How Christians usually mean it now is that we are close to the second coming of Christ, the rapture, whatever it might be. And I'm not going to comment on whether or not that's true, whether or not we are um, very close to the second coming of Christ. I can say definitively from the text that we are living in the last days. But what does that actually mean? So, 2,000 years. The author of Hebrews, as we mentioned last week, probably wrote about 60 AD, 60s, 50s AD. So, we're almost 2,000 years after the author to the Hebrews wrote this letter. Um, 
that doesn't sound very last days, right? If you say we're in the last days and then 2000 years later, we're still in the last days. However, um, I don't think that it's talking about a specific period of time. Instead, it's talking about an era of time. So in Matthew chapter 24, and I have it here for you, um, the disciples are asking Jesus and talking to Jesus and they ask him, tell us when will these things happen? Well, and Jesus had just finished saying that the temple was going to be destroyed, which it was in 70 AD. And the disciples say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Um, So that's what the disciples thought Jesus was going to accomplish, the end of the age. And Jesus did end the age, but not the way that they thought. He did and he didn't yet. Um, The last days as an era point to the fulfillment of Jesus's work on earth to bring what he has accomplished in heaven, and we'll see that next week, to earth. Um, The era that the author of Hebrews is talking about is the last era before the fulfillment of creation. And we can see that here in Acts chapter 2. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is the only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what the uh, what the prophet Joel and Peter are talking about here. Um, Well, Peter is saying that Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled on Pentecost, which is when Peter is speaking. He is saying we are now in the last days, right? He's not talking about an end of um, that Jesus has fulfilled everything that is to happen. Uh, That is still to come, of course, in the second coming of Christ. Jesus uh, will take his place as the true human one who is worthy to rule all of heaven and earth in one united kingdom, and we are living in the last days before that era happens. More on that next week. So we come to our second piece of um, our second comparison. God has spoken by the prophets compared to God has spoken by his son. So When the author of Hebrews says, by the prophets, I don't think that he means that only the, what Christians call the prophetic books, is what the author has in mind. Um, The prophets here probably means all of the Old Covenant scriptures, of the Hebrew scriptures, as I would call them. To prophesy, the word prophesy doesn't mean actually to foretell the future. It just means to speak God's words to mankind. So any author of Hebrew scripture, he penned an inspired work of God and man together. 
um, and those um, inspired to edit those writings into what we now know as the Hebrew scriptures. They would both the authors who originally penned them, the editors, everyone involved with that process of creating the Hebrew scriptures. We would call the prophets, um, and this is contrasted with in the Greek um, a son by a son. So there's no definite article in the Greek here, and so that means it it literally says he has spoken to us by son. So in John 1.1, 1, 1, the word is not the God. The word is simply God. Um, they don't put a there for a very important reason. He is not a God. It's something in between. It's the word is God. He both is God and is not the Father. So I think that something similar is happening here, though I think that the word a works in this context. And the Net Bible translators have a very good note um, on their translation that I've put on your screen. Let me actually get rid of my face so that you can read the whole thing. There we go. The Greek puts an emphasis on the quality of God's final revelation. As such, it is more than an indefinite notion, a son, though less than a definite one, the son. For this final revelation is not through any son of God, is not just through any son of God, nor is the emphasis specifically on the person himself. Rather, the focus here is on the nature of the vehicle of God's revelation. He is no mere spokesman or prophet for God, nor is he merely a heavenly messenger or angel. Instead, this final revelation comes through one who is intimately acquainted with the Heavenly Father in a way that only a family member could be. And next week, we are going to go through um, three ways that the author to Hebrews in verses 2 and 3 expands on the identity of this son in very interesting ways. So, um, why not the son? Why not just say God has spoken through the son? We all know who the son is. The son must be Jesus. Um, so wouldn't it make more sense to say God spoke to us through the son or even more clearly, the author to Hebrews could have said God has spoken us to us through the Messiah or through Jesus. And I think that there's a good reason. Um, so to explain myself, I have to jump around scripture a little bit and explain a concept that may be unfamiliar to you. Um, the term son of God is not new. It is used throughout scripture in very varying ways. Um, sons of God, multiple sons of God, is also not new. It's used in the Hebrew scriptures several times. For example, up on your screen here, in Genesis 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Let me get my face back on screen here. So, Sons of God, of course, right here. Clearly, I think, 
it is disputed. There are multiple different interpretations, but I think that this is referring to um, angelic beings, to heavenly beings, spiritual beings, whatever you want to term them. And I'm going to show you why, because every other instance of those words, sons of God in the Old Testament refers to spiritual beings. So we have spiritual beings in Genesis 6 that have rebelled by um, taking as wives daughters of men. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, so we're talking about Genesis 11, he fixed the borders of the peoples. And Genesis 11, by the way, is uh, Tower of Babel, just to be clear. Um, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. This is a disputed translation. Various translations may have sons of Israel instead of sons of God. There's a good reason why newer, more modern translations use sons of God, because that is most likely what the original text said. Um, just going to leave that controversy there for now. But here we have the nations being divided to, and given as rulership to sons of God, angelic heavenly beings. In Job chapter 1, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Yahweh, and Satan also came in among them. So here we have sons of God coming in to present themselves in God's throne room in a council sort of meeting. Satan came among them. In Psalm 82, we have a poem. God has taken his place in the divine council. So we have here a divine which means heavenly, um, spiritual beings, a council. So we have counselors of spiritual beings. And then it says, back to the text, in the midst of the gods, Elohim, other gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So when we connect that back to Deuteronomy 32, where God gave um, the nations to the sons of God. Now we have these gods um, in a divine council and Yahweh God is judging them for failing to uh, justly and righteously rule over those nations. Again, in Luke chapter 20, those who are considered worthy, uh, sorry, to set the context, um, we have the Sadducees asking Jesus about marriage in heaven. They propose that it's impossible for there to even be a spiritual world or even to be a heaven because clearly if there was a woman married to many men, then she would have to be married to many men in heaven. If she was married to many men in succession on earth, um, if she got divorced, remarried, then she would have to be married to both of them in heaven, for example. Jesus is responding. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age into the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So Christians become sons of God through the resurrection of the dead, become equal to uh, angelic sons of God, it would seem. So 
I think that the author of Hebrews is telling us that a divine being, one of God's heavenly counsel, is the one through whom God spoke. So both we and the original listeners, of course, know that he is talking about Jesus. So what I think that the author is saying here is that Jesus was not merely a human. He is a divine being as well. He is both God and man, or a God and man. So God used to speak through human prophets, and now he has spoken through a human that is also divine. So the immediate thing that's going to come to your mind, of course, is am I saying that Jesus is just a divine being, a son of God, uh, like the Jehovah's Witnesses might say, for example? Absolutely not. I'm definitely not saying that, and neither is the author to the Hebrews. And so I just want to absolutely reassure you that is not what I'm saying. Jesus is one of the members of the Trinity. He is the Son made incarnate. He is fully God, right? Truly Yahweh God. Um, I want to make that absolutely clear. We're going to see, and I'm going to show you in next week's video, exactly why the author to the Hebrews is also not saying that, because he's about to give us a really incredible three-point argument about why this son, Jesus, this son, is not merely any son, why he's not just any son, but he is in fact Yahweh God. So I'll leave that for next week since we're already getting close to the end here. But just to say for now, the author of Hebrews is identifying Jesus as not merely a human, but as a son of God, a divine being, both God and man, divine and man. So lastly, to come to our third point, God spoke at many times and in many ways versus nothing. Interesting. God speaking at many times and in many ways, I think is a reference to David's poetry, Ezekiel's apocalyptic visions, the chronicle, the chronicler's history. Many ways doesn't even begin to describe the abundance of genre and time period that God spoke through humans and inspired them to write scripture. So this is the only part of the son that isn't paralleled the many times, many ways that God spoke through the prophets. I think that this is intentional, and from a literary point of view, it's a statement of finality. God spoke through many people, many times, many ways, and now God's spoken through his son. One time, one way, and that's all that we need. Why is that? Because the Son is the very speech of God. I don't think that the author of Hebrews is only talking about the words that came out of this Son's mouth, the words that came out of Jesus' mouth. Every action that Jesus took as God incarnate revealed God to us. Every action that he took, every act of compassion that he had on another person, every bite of meal that he took with his disciples, um, everything that he inspired his disciples to write, all of that is part of the divine speech through the Son. 
the character of God revealed through the Son. And we can see in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not only through the words that he spoke, but through his very being, he embodied God and grace and truth. Well, the Garden Weekly is a weekly newsletter and ministry helping you to find Christian videos, podcasts, and articles that will deepen your understanding of Scripture, God, and the world around us and how we should relate to it. If you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter, you can go to thegardenweekly.com or the link will be in the description of the video. And if you enjoyed the video, hit the thumbs up, subscribe, hit the bell. You know the full drill, I'm sure. Allow me to close us in prayer. Father God, thank you for your son, the son that you sent into the world to die for us. Talk about an act of divine revelation. The fact that you would come in the form of a baby, born of a virgin, lived a life of carpentry, suffering, ministry, and death. Not just any death, death for our sins. You became sin for us. And we thank you for that, Lord. And if there is any hearer of my words, any watcher of this video who does not know you, who does not understand what it means for you to have died for their sins, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would bring someone along their path who can speak about you and what you've done in their life and that they would find you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you so much for being here and I'll see you next week.